Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, great to have you along. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. Coming up, one of Australia's most treasured performers, a man who's carved a unique path through four decades of Australian culture. He's an iconic storyteller who always manages to get to the heart of what it means to be human. But a tale of two lovers that was told to me Makes me want to scream and shout Like Romeo and Juliet A love story you won't forget Tell me why, tell me why did they destroy a love like that? Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why did they do that? Didn't matter who to blame or who to, who to be angry at, they just pretty angry at most everybody. We'll catch up with the 66-year-old Archie Roach shortly. Also on the show today, do you remember the trio Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds? They had a massive one-hit wonder with this one. Don't pull your love out on me, baby. If you do, then I think that maybe I'll just lay me down. Right for hundred years. Don't pull your love out on me, honey. Take my heart, my soul, my money. But don't leave me drowning in my tears. I'm sure you're going to love checking in with the band's founder, Joe Frank Carollo. But before we go there, it's new music rap time, and this week Rust Belt blues singer and guitarist Larry McRae is releasing his first album in nearly seven years called Blues Without You. Here's the first single called Arkansas. Well, I was born in Arkansas Come up feeding hogs and bailing straw He's got a big sound, doesn't he? A little softer is the new one from Canadian alternative country and folk rock band The Cowboy Junkies. The album's called Songs of the Recollection. Pushing through the market square So many mothers sighing News just come over Five years left to cry News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying Cried so much his face was wet Then I knew he was not lying Five years there from the Cowboy Junkies The album's out now This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Okay, my first guest today is the founder of that horn-driven outfit, Tower of Power. They were the band that emerged in the late 60s in Oakland, California. Their blend of R&B, soul, funk and pop helped push the sound of brass-infused music into the rock era. Here's Emilio Castillo to tell us about Tower of Power's latest album, 50 Years of Funk and Soul. We had done a DVD 10 years before that for our 40th, and uh, it was uh, you know, it came out really good. We're very proud of it, but we wanted to do something different this time. So we invited some key players to uh, participate. We augmented the background vocals with two extra background singers and uh, added a trombone. But the, the real big difference was we had 10 strings so that was fabulous. It was the first time we ever performed with a string section, you know, and uh, we did all these arrangements to songs that didn't even have strings originally. You know, we put strings on them and some of our newer stuff, we even put strings on those. So it really came out great. So you want to find your trick back, and ease on and a human back. But you ain't just excitement, super hip. 
music career really started as a young child, didn't it? You'd tell us the story about how you discovered music. <laughs> My brother and I and a friend of ours were going to the swimming pool. Summer had just started. And we we're going to go swimming at the local high school swimming pool. And uh, we used to go through this uh, department store called Mervyn's. And all the young men at that time were wearing these special t-shirts that were like multicolored and very tight and high necked. And they were really cool. And we had the great idea that if we put on three of those shirts and put our shirt over it, we could just walk out with three free t-shirts. And of course we walked out, the manager was waiting for us. I called my dad. My dad uh, came, made me apologize to the manager, gave me a notebook, said, fill it with why you're never going to steal again. And while you're in that room, think of something that's going to keep you out of trouble this summer or you're never coming out of there. And the Beatles had just come out. It was 1964. And uh, we said, we want to play music, Dad. And he said, get in the car. And we went and got in the car and he took us to the music store. All the instruments were on the wall. And I pointed to the sax because I, I always thought the sax player was the coolest guy. My brother always thought the drummer was the coolest guy. So he pointed to the drums. And then, you know, I always tell people, I like to tell you that we were, you know, we practiced and practiced for years and years and then started a band. But we did it totally backwards, backwards. We started the band that day and we learned to play along the way. And uh, so I've had a band ever since that day. And do you still think the sax player is the coolest guy in the band? Absolutely. You've had something like 60 members of Tower of Power go through over the last 50 years. There's only two of you that have been constant all the way. Doc and myself, yeah. Yeah. Rocco was most of the time. I fired Rocco for eight years uh, at the end of the 70s and we brought him back. We were so crazy. He couldn't he couldn't take watching us kill ourselves. And then I sobered up. Then Doc sobered up. Then we all started praying together. Before you knew it, he came back and it's been really great. How did you get through those heady days of the 60s and 70s? Was there a, a one moment in time where you said, enough is enough? Yeah, I mean, my patented answer to that question these days is God did it. I just showed up because we made every mistake possible known to man in those first 20 years, you know. But by 1988, God had got my attention. I was completely ready to stop. And I, I didn't think that I could. And I went into a recovery program and found out about the 12-step programs. And uh, I got sober. And in my first year, Doc always says, he made my life hell for a year. <laughs> and then he sobered up. And once the two of us sobered up, you know, our stance was, you know, we're a clean and sober band. And it just kind of morphed into a band that uh, is really proud of our reputation. And how did that status change the music? It did change the music in that we were more aware of what we were doing. We were able to uh, take chances more. We were able to, you know, accomplish things that uh, might be beyond our grasp before that. Yeah, it really saved your life, huh? No question about that. When I got sober, I knew I was going to die before I was 40. I had accepted it, and I knew there was nothing I could do about it. But when I found out about those 12 steps, I realized there's something that they do at those meetings that you can stop using and not be miserable. And I wanted that with every fiber of my being. So how many years sober? 33. That's brilliant. Emilio Castillo, you were incredibly influenced by Sly and the Family Stone. Very much so, yes. Sly actually played at a nightclub near our house uh, for a year before they actually, you know, became a national act. And we used to go on weekends, uh, Rocco and I, and we would sneak around the back. There was a cyclone fence and we would climb the fence and go in through the pool into the back door. And we would stay there from nine o'clock until six in the morning when they served free breakfast. And we would, we would watch Sly and the Family Stone, uh, you know, do before hours sets and after hours sets. And after hours, there was no dancing. There was a rule in uh, in that city, a blue law that said between 2 and 6 a.m., you couldn't drink and you couldn't dance. And so the band had to entertain the audience because they were just sitting there, you know. So Sly and them used to go on the dance floor and do hand bone contests. They would start songs, you know, and they'd all be playing. Then they move over to the next instrument and they kept moving till they all came back to the original instrument. All kind of shtick like that, you know. And we loved it. We just loved it. Sometimes I'm right.
us. And then, you know, we were really into studying what they did. One night, we just watched the drummer all night. Next night, we just watched Larry Graham on the bass, you know. Next night, we just watched Jerry Martini on the saxophone, you know. It was like going to school for us, you know. But, you know, the thing about it, we were we didn't want to sound like Sly and the Thumb Stone, but we wanted to have that live energy that they had when they were on stage, you know. So you're pleased with the results of it, Tower of Power, providing that huge energy and lots of stage entertainment. I'm very proud of the band. You know, we make our music exactly the way we want it to be. You know, we learned a long time ago, no matter what we do, we sound like Tower of Power. So let's just make it the best Tower of Power we could be. Ain't nothing I can say, nothing I can do. I feel so bad, yeah, I feel so blue. Even if it's me, if it means it's me, what's getting back? Cause I could never make you unhappy. No, I couldn't do that, girl. Only wish I didn't love you so. As a horn section, you've done lots of collaborations. You've got your favourites amongst them. Can you share those? I think Huey Lewis has to be at the top of the list. We actually, not only did we record many of his albums, but we actually toured live with him, our horns. It was at a time when Tower Power wasn't doing as well as we are now. And uh, he wanted us to go on tour, and they had just put out that big album with I Want a New Drug, you know. And he said, you know, we could pay you really well, and we certainly needed the money. But I made a deal with him. I said, you know, if you promise to promote Tower Power everywhere we go, And if you allow me to bring Tower Power out to do midnight shows at the local nightclub and you announce it at the arena and tell them you're coming down to sit in with us, because he used to sit in and sing some of our songs, you know, so he really sort of single-handedly helped me resurrect our career. is uh, Little Feet. We did many of Little Feet's records. The biggest one that they ever did, we did with them as a live record called Waiting for Columbus. They were just a really uh, musical band. We used to tell them, you're the masters of slow funk, we're the masters of fast funk, you know. We just saw eye to eye uh, on music and got along great. And that album, we're very proud of. I see the bright lights of Memphis and the
Any plans to tour internationally beyond this tour? We are definitely coming out. And, you know, we really sort of did our best to push the envelope to get to Australia more in the last few years. And then the big one that we haven't done yet, South America. We've never been there, and I know we're going to do great there, and somehow we're going to get there. Emilio Castillo, thank you so much for talking with me today. My pleasure, Sandy. Thanks for having me. Let's hope Emilio makes good on his promise and visits very soon. Now, don't go anywhere, because coming up next, we catch up with Joe Frank Carollo. When rock and roll came around, that changed up everything. And everybody was experimenting. I don't think anybody really knew, said, oh, yeah, this is the key. Let's get this and work it. Because back in the day, you didn't know what worked. You just tried everything. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for your company. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. Now, you know what segment two means, don't you? Mm -hmm. It's time for our One Hit Wonders. Call me one hit wonder, curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder, I hit the blunt and just wonder. This week I bring you a band whose name you may not remember, but their song? Well, I'm pretty sure if you're of my vintage, you're going to recall it. Don't pull your love out on me, baby. If you do, then I'll cling to maybe I'll just lay me down. Love from the trio Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds. It was a top 10 hit back in 1971. The song was actually the first of two top 10 hits that Dan Hamilton, Tommy Reynolds and Joe Frank Carollo had. So I made it my business to find out how these guys are doing today. Joe Frank Carollo, terrific to meet you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Not a problem. How's life? What's going on? Oh, just uh, zipping right along here. You say you've been on the road pretty much since 1965. Take us back to those days and tell us what it was like. Well, it was wacky. Actually, I started playing in the 50s, in 1950, and I had a garage band in the middle 50s. And we did fraternities and stuff like, you know, uh, proms and things like that. And uh, I moved my band to Memphis back in the uh, early 60s. Because Memphis was happening so much at that time. There was so much music out of there. My band there was called Joe Frank and the Knights. We were known as uh, charging too much and being too loud and playing too long. We, uh, it was kind of what you were hearing back in the 60s from England. You could check one out. It's called Can't Find a Way. It's a pretty trippy little tune. So check it out. pretty good you know we the band was my drummer was my cousin uh, joe carrero and he went on to to go with paul revere and the raiders and my guitar player was a guy named mark tidwell and mark went and played guitar with charlie rich my baby makes me proud lord don't you make me proud Never makes a scene by hanging all over me in a crowd. Cause people like to talk, Lord, don't they love to talk? But when they turn out the lights, I know she'll be. And when we get behind closed doors, when she lets her hair hang down, 
joined this group called the T-Bones, and that's what ended up being Hamilton, Joe Frank, and Reynolds. So why did Joe Frank and the Knights split up? Well, we, we've been together since like the ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade. I, I think we were about sick of each other, you know. Would you describe those days as the heyday of music? From all you've seen, was that when the time was the best? I thought it was, and I, I still think it was today. It was unbelievable. You heard so much, so so many different styles, and but it, everything was just super good. And everybody was experimenting. I don't think anybody really knew, said, oh, yeah, this is the key. Let's get this and work it. Because back in the day, you just you didn't know what worked. You just tried everything. Yeah. The worst part about that era, though, was that if you got a hit, within two days, there were 25 groups that covered that. And <laughs> so it's like, I'm going, why can't you find something of your own to do? You know, don't pick somebody else's stuff. Did that happen to you? No, once we got a hit, nobody covered it as far as like, but don't pull your love. Glenn Campbell did a version of it. Sam and Dave, it was an R&B version of it. Joe Frank and the Knights was on the on the road doing a tour, and we were doing it as the Marquis. Marquis was the house band for Stacked Records, and they were the guys you saw in all the Blues Brothers movies. Really, my band had, on that tour had decided that you know we were all going to try to do something else, you know, individually. Uh-huh. So I joined the T Bones. I had so much fun playing; it was ridiculous. Music was uh, uh, really. Uh, happening thing back then. Yeah. Do you miss those days? Oh, yeah, I, I do, yeah. Joe Frank Carolla, what happens yeah. next? I think I ran into Tommy and Danny. Danny and I started playing uh, as a duo, and we were working clubs around the L.A. area, and Tommy had a band of his own, and so his band was splitting up, so we asked Tommy to come and play. And during that time, Tommy had a a connection at ABC Dunhill. So we got a chance to go over and do a thing in the studio for them. And while we were singing, they brought out a demo of Don't Pull Your Love. And they played it for us three or four times and we sang it. And when we, before we finished singing it, the president of ABC Dunhill had come in there and wanted to sign us to a record deal that day. Amazing. First we did work on Don't Pull Your Love to get a single out. And we were working on the album about the same time. Don't pull your love out on me, baby. If you do the thing to me, I'll just lay me down. Right for hundred years. Don't pull your love out on me, honey. Take my heart, my soul, my money. But don't leave me drowning in my tears. You say you're gonna leave. Gonna take that big white bird. single word but you know you'll break my heart when I want you close that door cause I know I won't see you anymore don't pull your love out on me baby if you do that I think that maybe I'll just lay me down right for hundred years don't pull your love out on me honey take my heart my soul my money but don't It had actually been recorded by the same two guys that wrote the song about a year before we uh, had got it. When they had it out, it didn't go anywhere? No. So, Joe, what was so special about your version of Don't Pull Your Love Out that saw it become such a huge I, hit? I, I, I just think it was the vocal, the sound that we had together. You know, Danny and I had been working together for years, and our, our harmonies were kind of uh, Everly Brothers-type harmonies. So I, ble- I really believe it's just the sound that the two of us had together. Right. And once that song started climbing the charts, where did that take you? We came out of clubs and started touring with some major acts. And uh, we were on the same label that uh, Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf were on. So we would open for those two acts a lot. 
So how are you feeling in yourself during these days? I, I, I don't know. You know, it was it was fun. I had I really had probably the best times of my life. I was married four times. Four got, times? Yeah. I, Is that it, life on the road? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it, you know. I, I'd imagine you were probably playing and playing. And I could have been, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ain't going to talk about that right now, ma'am. No, probably best not to. It was 1975 when the group hit the top spot with this one, Fallen in Love. Baby, baby, falling in love. I'm falling in love again. Baby, baby, falling in love. I'm falling in love again. What happened to your partners in the band? Well, Danny passed away in the 90s. He was uh, in his late 40s. I had, uh, I think it was Cushing's disease. And and then uh, Tommy, I literally, I used to talk to Tommy about once a year. Uh, He became a Jehovah Witness and he moved to Florida. Ah. We did a 20-year tour. He joined us for that. And that was literally about the last time we talked. Uh, How does that feel for you? When he left the group to do what he wanted to do right after the first album, he kind of blew me away. I, I didn't know what to think with it with him. And then when he started his own band after the he left, and then the, we Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds just kind of stopped for a while. I joined his band, and he had done a bunch of original stuff and sent it to Stax Records and was ready to sign for Stacks. We recorded everything. And he knocked on my door one morning about seven o'clock and said, uh, and his hair, he had long hair. He was, hair was all cut off. He had, his eyes to me were like crystal clear. And he said, I'm not playing anymore. I'm becoming a Jehovah Witness. He's lucky he's alive because there were two guys in the band that literally would wanted to kill him. They put their whole lives on hold for him. And then he just kind of blew everybody off. So when that happened, I just went, yeah, go ahead. I, I got nothing to do with you anymore. Right. You know, it was fun when you were here. It ain't no more. Yeah. Were you very disappointed? I was disappointed that he didn't want to play and blew this thing off, you know, after we spent. So if he knew what he was going to do way before this, then you should have made some mention to this before we started yeah. recording and spent all our time for you. So I just, I went on and I played with a lot of different people. Yeah. Who's been some of your favorites you've played with? Well, I joined uh, this band called the New Christy Minstrels. There were folk singing, big folk singing group back in the uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm not a big folk music fan. You know, I like some of the stuff, but I like the way they performed and I wanted to see if maybe I could learn how to do that. Kenny Rogers was the front guy in the band. Green, green, it's green, they say, on the far side of the See, I'm gone. You know, there ain't no woman gonna settle me down. I just gotta be to ravel it on. A singing green, green, it's green, they say, on the far side of the hill. Green, green, I'm going away to where the grass is greener still. You still learning today? Every day, every time you pick up your instrument, you bet there's something going on. Would you change anything? Or are you happy with it just the way it went? You know, I'm asked that a lot. I'm tickled to death with all of it, so I have no regrets at all. Oh, that's awesome. Were you never disappointed that you've never had 
another pit like Don't Pull Your Love? No, you know, I, I, it, it would have been nice, you know, because we worked really hard on this stuff here. But you know, when Danny passed away, I didn't even play for a long time. I just kind of worn out with it, the whole music thing. So I just went to work. Joe Frank Carolla, thank you so much for your time. You got it. Thank you, ma'am. Today, Joe Frank Carollo plays in a 12-piece blues band with his son, Joey Newman. The band is called Joe Frank and the World Famous Assistants. and streaming time again with media critic Alan Craig. Hi, Alan. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. I hear that a British comedy has captured your imagination this week. Yeah, there's a lot of people talking about this film called The Duke with Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren. So I went along to see what it was like. It's a classic tale of David versus Goliath, and in this case, a taxi driver taking on the British establishment. And that's in parts very, very funny. It's based on a, on a true story. This guy is what many people call a vexatious litigant. He liked taking on the government over things that he's greatly concerned about. His major campaign is to have fees paid for his television licence rescinded. So he disables his TV from being able to receive the BBC and therefore says, well, he's not getting any government services, so he shouldn't have to pay a licence. He ends up going to jail for that. But then, of course, he's got uh, he's got bigger fish to fry a bit later on in the film. Yeah, well, it's set in Newcastle in England in 1961, and this taxi driver actually steals a painting, a very famous painting, a Goya, from the gallery. Well, he's accused of stealing the painting, and he ends up in the frame for it. However, I don't want to give away too much of the story, but in the course of his court case, where he proceeds to, uh, in Australian language, take the piss out of the British establishment, and he really has a field day with them, and it turns out to be a very funny man. What do you mean by that? What's that Australianism? Take the piss. <laughs> well, he sends them up. He sends up the British establishment and shows them to be hypocritical. You have to understand a little bit about Newcastle. It really is a downtrodden working class community. It was, a, it was formerly a coal mining community. And especially in 1961. Indeed. And so the working class there had always been looked down on, but they do have this stoic um, quality, which is quite admirable. Although his wife, played by Helen Mirren, and she, she really does play it very well, thinks he's crazy as he gets infuriated with him because she's more practical. She she works to feed the family while he's conducting these crazy campaigns. But the backstory, which is really interesting, it's a very human story because they're both, he's acting out the way he is and she's acting out the way that she is because they're trying to deal with the premature death of their daughter. So it's actually quite a touching story in the end. Do you think it'll be enjoyable by people anywhere? Look, I think the fact that he sends up the British establishment and shows it up for what it is will be enjoyed by many. I mean, everybody loves a David versus Goliath story and he really does give them some curry. It's called The Duke. It's in cinemas now, so go take a look. Thanks for your time today, Alan. Oh, thank you, Sandy. Thanks, everyone. Hang in there, won't you? Get set to meet Australia's national treasure, Archie Roach. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. It's great to have you here. I really appreciate your company. If you live in Australia, you're sure to have heard of my next guest. If not, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's a singer, songwriter, musician and campaigner for the rights of First Nation Australians. He's been performing since 1988, has been named Australian of the Year and has won so many awards, including a Human Rights Medal. Thanks to Ty in the Melbourne suburb of Cremorne, who asked me to track him down, I'm very pleased now to introduce you to Australia's national treasure, Archie Roach. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Archie. I really appreciate your time. You're such an awesome ambassador for this country. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You're about to head out on tour. What are we going to see from you on that tour? Well, a lot of songs that we never got a chance last year to do, and uh, so some of the songs 
you know, rehashed uh, a lot of the songs, you know, some old stuff, but, but reinterpretation um, of, of those songs. The tour's called Tell Me Why. Tell Me Why. Well, yeah, it was like uh, my memoir, I got a call, Tell Me Why, and I just asked the question, can't you why everything's happened the way they did with me in my life? And, and so we, we, we did the companion album, uh, we called it Tell Me Why as well. There's many great loves in history that we know about But a tale of two lovers that was told to me Makes me want to scream and shout Like Romeo and Juliet A love story you won't forget But tell me why, tell me why Did they destroy a love like that? Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why Did they do that? Snowball Roach and Ellie Austin Loved each other around Oh, and I don't think that they argued often Somebody broke the spell Yeah, they broke the spell and broke their heart Then they drifted far apart Tell me why, tell me why Did they destroy love like that? Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why Did they do that? Well, it caught two hearts apart Left them bleeding all alone And threw them in the river Made of stone As part of the stolen generation, Archie Roach was forcibly removed from his family by the government in a bid to assimilate many First Nation children into white Australian culture. I was just two when I was taken. So I pretty much grew up in... Yeah, an institution in foster homes. You know, after a while, you just think that's that's normal. Three, three different foster parents, three different foster homes. And, you know, you'd go from one, one, one place to another. And uh, later on, when I found out that that wasn't the case, you know, from uh, when I was 14, from a letter that my sister had written to me and I received at the school I was attending, telling me that our mother had passed away a week ago and then naming brothers and sisters I'd never heard of. That had set me off on the journey where I was a bit confused. Oh, you managed to overcome teenage alcoholism and homelessness? Yeah, yeah. You never got to meet your birth parents? No, unfortunately. They were, you know, mum was like, like I said, when I was 14, mum passed away. And uh, dad had already passed, passed away. Did it leave you really angry and full of resentment? Well, yeah. I mean, you just, I think, you know, you, you, back in the day, yeah, it was. And you, so you just, you just lashed out. It didn't know who to, who, who, to, who to blame or who to, who to be angry at, but you just pretty angry at most everybody. The story's right, the story's true. I would not tell lies to you. Like the promises they did not keep. How they fenced us in like sheep They said to us, come take our hand Set us up on mission land They taught us to read, to write and pray Then they took the children away Took the children away The children away Snatched from their mother's breast Said this is for the best Took them away The welfare and the policemen Said you got to understand Give to them what you can't give Teach them how to really live Teach them how to live They said Humiliated them instead They taught them that And taught them this And others taught them Prejudice It took the children away the children away Breaking their mother's heart Tearing them all apart 
put them away. When I was a kid drinking alcohol, I just compounded that uh, resentment. And so I was a pretty quiet fellow, but you know, you, you looked at me the wrong way and I died. You could go off. Yeah, you yeah. <laughs> Archie, you actually won a Human Rights Achievement Award for your iconic Stolen Generation song, Took the Children Away. Were you surprised to pick that up? I was. I didn't even, you know, didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know what I was there for when they started talking about this fella writing songs and banging. I realised it sounded like me. How amazing. You really did turn your attention in a big way to try and look after Indigenous kids and to contribute to Indigenous arts and culture, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was important that, you know, that you, that you give them they had a bit of trouble at home for one reason or another. And I, didn't, I didn't trust you. So they just had them someplace to stay. We'd sing songs and we'd talk about culture and they pretty much knew my story. They made mistakes, you know, but that was because they were looking for family drinking and, you know, end up in jail. And so that was good to, to, to share that. And they said, hey, you don't have to go down that road. I've, uh, I've already been there, I mean. You just wanted to help them. Yeah, that's one one reason. The arts and, and culture to me is, is, is pretty, is, is one and the same, I think. Yeah. You picked up two ARIA awards for your very first album called Charcoal Lane. Can you tell us a little bit about Charcoal Lane? Yeah, it's a song about the place where we used to frequent in, uh, on the Collingwood side of Smith Street. In Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. And uh, it was a place we used to drink. Yeah, you, you was out of the road. Nobody, nobody could see you, you know. And, uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a good place, a good spot to, to drink. We, we, you know, we, we call it Charter Lane because at the end of the lane was this little factory where they made baguettes from, I know, where the baguettes are made from coal and stuff like that. So we call it Charter Lane. And um, why did you choose to write about that? I just thought it'd be a good song and that, I know, that, that people know that you know, people... Only think or just see people drinking, you know, here and there. They don't really know much of the story about, you know, what, what people did, you know. Side by side, we'd walk along to the end of Gertrude Street. And we'd pop all and muster for a quart of wine. Because then, Right or wrong, in the cold and in the heat, we cross over Smith Street to the end of the line. Then we'd laugh and sing, do anything to take away the pain, trying to keep it down as it first went down. In Lane. It's more than, more than just drinking. It was, you know, with stories and yarns we tell, tell each other. Archie Roach has worked tirelessly all his adult life to help others. He spent time as a drug and alcohol counsellor, but found that music was the real gift he could offer. My foster sister Mary, she played organ at church. She got me interested in music. I started off uh, playing keyboard first, and then I, I sort of graduated. Well, I started, then after that, I got, uh, got to playing guitar. So from an early age, I loved music. It's just when I decided anyway that you know, when songs came to me, you know, and so I decided to write songs and music, it helped me when I stopped drinking. It, it helped me, you know, to it, it filled that void, that abstinence from alcohol, that's in my life, you know, so I had to fill that with something. And music and uh, writing songs is a good way to do that, I thought. Is it true that after you suffered a stroke in 2010, you actually had to learn to play the guitar all over again? Yeah, because I couldn't leave my right side. My right side was gone and I couldn't walk. So it was all gradual. I had to learn to, I couldn't pick things up or use my left hand. So I had to put a jar, you know, to get you know, grains of rice and then pick up the rice and put them in this jar. And this is all sort of rehabilitation to get myself going again. Yeah. I use a bit of oxygen now because of other things that I have uh, going in my life. I've had half a lung removed, so when I had lung cancer, they removed half my left lung. And how is your health these days? I have a few respiratory problems, but apart from that, it's just pretty good. Yeah. My doctor says, I know what, what's wrong with you, medically, what's, what's not right with you. Right. Get up on stage, and I don't know what happens if it's, uh, it's just like something happens when you're on stage. And so he says, You should be able to do what you do. Well, I do. I do it anyway to be. It's a blessing. We can see from dreaming place. 
Australia sit with you? I have no problem with that, you know, it's just it's a great honour. To be accepted right across the board, basically everybody, you know, that, that, that award is just you know, another one that's like, well, it's not just First Nation people, it's humbling. You're absolutely loved everywhere, aren't you? You've toured with artists like Bob Dylan and Yothi Yindi and Tracy Chapman, Patti Smith, Joan Armitrading. You're loved wherever they get a look at you. You know, if you would have had told me, you know, 30 years ago, or I'm a bit, bit longer, you know, that, that would be the case, I'd I, 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 I've been calling you silly. You've got a film starting up called Wash My Soul and the Rivers Flow. Yeah, it's a documentary that, that is filmed about Ruby and her story and her connection to the Murray River. Yeah, your lovely wife. I'm sorry you lost her. But we both wrote the songs for, for it. Well, life is like all I go with her. You only what you sow, I hope it's good, and what you give her, in return for what you grow, oh I'm going down, down the river today, I'm jumping in the best to you, Archie Roach. Thanks for sharing your time with me today. All right, see you. What a pleasure he is to chat to. I hope you enjoyed meeting him and hearing a little bit of his music. If you'd like to hear more of it, Archie has just released a career-spanning anthology album called My Songs 1989-2021. to And don't forget, you're invited to get in touch with me and request someone you'd like to hear from too. Just send me a message through the website, A Breath of Fresh Air. That's abreathoffreshair.com.au. Time for me to go now. I'll leave you with words from Tower of Power's Emilio Castillo, who once said acceptance, prayer, health, give and take, patience. That's what we all need. Pretty good advice, isn't it? Thanks for joining me today. I'll look forward to your company again same time next week. Meantime, have fun, won't you? See you then. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.